we're in a complex, unpredictable environment and we've got to try stuff out. And actually, that's the transformation. That's where it starts to feel different. As a result of it starting to feel different, you start to see different things. Hello and welcome back to ZapChat, the show where we zap it and chat it. I'm Richard Milnes and today we are joined by Jamie Garner and Don Roberts, two giants in the industry. We're going to be talking about a power going shift in digitalization, systematic problems in manufacturing, and how to collaborate with vendors to break down the silos. I can't think of two guests better to talk about the future of manufacturing, so let's jump right in. Hello and welcome to ZapChat. Today I'm joined by Jamie Garner and John Robinson. Uh, Jamie is the driving force behind Inzito Partnerships' transformational leadership practice. He's a thought leader about innovation, enhances leadership impact on both individual and organizational scale. He's an associate for the world-renowned leadership development groups, founder of Thoroughbred Associates, and go-to consultant for giants like Unilever Novartis and the European Commission. With a diverse journey from Deloitte to HSBC, Jamie combines data analytics, AI, and a global network to create transformational success. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. I'm also joined today by John Robinson. John is a seasoned manufacturing consultant with a 30-year track record. He's a true Industry 4.0 enthusiast, and his career is a tapestry of leadership roles at Kearney, SAP, EY, Atos, Aviva, coupled with a decade in manufacturing. His extensive journey encompasses collaborations with global manufacturing giants, providing unparalleled expertise in digital transformation challenges. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Now, it's a pleasure to be here. So today, I thought there's, you know, having you both in the same room is amazing because I think you bring in you know, two very different angles on the same problem. And today we're going to be talking about transformation and the connected digitalization of manufacturing. I wondered whether as a starting point, it'd be interesting to know, Jamie and John, from your experience, like what is transformation and what does that look like when it's done well? Great question to start with. A fundamental <laughs> question. What is it? What's it all about? Um, John, I don't know whether you are tempted to dive into this one straight away. I was going to let you have that one first. Uh, <laughs> that's the answer's 42 before we start, by the way. <laughs> um, you know what? I'm going to recall a time when, actually, when I was in the shortlist to be the head of transformation for a private bank. I was one of three candidates who hadn't actually previously run a private bank. And um, the answer to one of the questions about, well, what does transformation mean to this business? stuck in their mind. And when they played it back to me, I thought, oh, that sounded rather good. Transformation, as I described it, was when something really feels different after a transition, mm. not just looks different or operates differently, when it feels different. So I, I've stuck with that as a nice, simple way of saying transformation feels different. And I think the, uh, the, the interviewer at the time was I, I can't give them credit now since too long ago. Really helped me with that. Yeah, I think that um, sort of ties in actually to probably part of the the answer that I was going to give. Because again, I think transformation in terms of when I've seen it in manufacturing and, and done well, it is actually what you've just said, Jamie. It's not a marginal shift on the edges. It's a paradigm shift. You know, it really is quite a big change for the organization, whether that's a technical change, cultural change, 
change of direction in terms of which way the company is going full stop, you know, business model, re-engineering, diversifying into new markets, whatever it is. But transformation, I suppose in its truest sense for me, is that sort of paradigm shift that's clearly evident. You can see it. Mm -hmm. John, you've been in you've been in the industry for a while, I hope you don't mind me saying, and you've seen it from both, I guess, the customer side, the manufacturer side, and then also the provider side. I was wondering whether you, do you see the digital transformation trend, as it were, you know, certainly a phrase that's got very popular over the last 10 years. Is it a trend that things change, or has it always been the case for as long as you've been in the workplace and it just continues to evolve? Uh, yeah, again, another good question. So personal point of view, and this is a bit of a paradox for me personally, is you know the last decade I've been essentially carrying the badge of Industry 4 somewhere along the line in, in some capacity. So Industry 4, you do associate with disruptive technologies and again, paradigm shifts, change, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, not much has changed in my view. I have a, a point of view why that hasn't changed, but the whole digital transformation uh, hype cycle bandwagon in some respects has not really manifested itself in the manufacturers in the way that they probably expected 10 years ago when the Industry 4 uh, you know, term was first coined and, and all the excitement around what the potential could be. So no, I, I personally don't think the technologies that are available now that are certainly disrupting the way that we function as a society. So I think clearly... From a home perspective and a personal life perspective, transformation has clearly had an effect. We are very different now with social networks and mobile devices and you know all, all sorts of things that you're very clear to see, but it's just not translating to manufacturing. That's really interesting. And that, how can resist, but to sort of probe you a little bit more on that, John, you, you said you had your view on why that isn't. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you see the world and you know, what's working and what's not working? Yeah, well, I think from a manufacturing perspective, the technologies we're utilizing in our personal life are the same ones that are there to be used in manufacturing. It's more of a uh, fundamental uh, systemic problem in manufacturing that's basically, again, this is only a personal point of view, but as you mentioned, I'm, I'm in quite an unusual position having the career that I've had, and I am that old, by the way, you know, I am 50. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I know this is an audio-only recording, but you, you wouldn't know it looking at John. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but no, in all seriousness, since the, the mid-80s, when I first went into manufacturing, that tech decade in manufacturing, sort of learning manufacturing first, but then deciding that manufacturing technology looked quite interesting, and then moving out manufacturing. And then since then, I've sort of been trying to find the answer. And that took me from initially shop floor systems with PLC, SCADA, OEM equipment, through the MES layer, partnering with SAP around ERP integration, you know, perfect plant concept, um, ITOT integration, uh, working for system integrators on the pure IT side and the OT side, then EY, which are one of the big four, then SAP for three years, and then Carney, you know, pure consulting firm. And in looking for the answer, I never found it. And I, I sort of it dawned on me during the pandemic, I had a bit of a, an epiphany. The, the systemic problem, which I'll try and describe in about two minutes flat, if I possibly can, you know, being lucky enough to travel the world for 30 years, meeting most of those big global manufacturing brands that you mentioned, the, you know, the AB InBevs, the Rolls Royces of this world and, and multiple others on a global basis. 
they've all basically followed four big investment trends that have been aimed at delivering performance improvement to the bottom line and improving manufacturing performance. So one is the strategic decisions they've made around mergers, acquisitions, divestments, where to build new plants, how to organize their global supply chain, which products to bring to market, which markets to serve, etc. Uh, so that's the type of work that they do with the consultants like McKinsey, BCG, Bain, and others. They've all invested in operational excellence methodologies, things like Toyota production system, lean ways of working. You know, they, you walk around any factory and you'll probably see a Greek temple on the wall. Anonymous um, <laughs> maintenance focused improvement. And they all call them, they have their, their own brands, but it's it's basically based on the same concepts of OPEX. Uh, they've all. With a definite amount of pillars, though. Well, yeah. <laughs> The Greek temple always changes. I don't know. I wish to stick to a standard design, but you know, I thought a Greek <laughs> There you go. Um, but the third big investment area has been in their, their supply chain and ERP systems, which are typically bought by the CIO on behalf of the business. And then the fourth investment area has been in operational technologies in the factories. So again, you look at a automation production line, high speed filling line in Pepsi Coke, automated production lines in BMW, you know, in, in the OT sector. But despite those four big investments, most CXOs would tell you that those have delivered value, but none of them have fully delivered on promise. And then the question is, well, why? And when you start to dig into the why, it's partly because the client is siloed internally. So they have the board, they have the CIO and IT, they have engineering who build plants because the CIO doesn't. And then you have operations using operational excellence. So in most organizations, IT and engineering are sometimes competing to provide solutions to operations so operations can make better decisions. Then when you look at the supplier ecosystem, it's a mirror image of the same problem. So you have all the big consulting firms wanting to be the board's trusted advisor. You have an entire IT ecosystem basically targeting the CIO and IT spend. There's a totally different ecosystem, the likes of Siemens, GE, Rockwell, the OEMs like Tetra Pak, Crone, they're all targeting engineers. And then OPEX is back to boutique consulting around you know, lean and various other things. So the supplier ecosystem is a mirror image, but that's industry three, that dynamic, that status quo problem has been around a long time and we never quite figured it out. And then industry four came along with all the new technologies. Everybody got super excited about it. And so now we've got AI, machine learning, AR, VR, IOT platforms, big data, mobility, 5G. There's all these technologies out there, but it's in what McKinsey called pilot purgatory. But manufacturers can't adopt these technologies and roll them out globally. And again, if you ask me, well, why is that happening? It's because we never solved the problem of the first 30 years of Industry 3. We never broke down the silos between IT, engineering, operations, and strategy. So all Industry 4 has done is just basically give the manufacturer more vendors, more technologies, more ways to try and solve the problem and deliver value. And it's paralysis. You just don't know where to begin to do that. So in terms of why digital transformation has just not hit. And when I say manufacturing, I mean inside the four walls of a manufacturer. There, there are certainly technologies that have helped to improve supply chains and uh, supply chain analytics, but actually making the thing, which is a raison d'etre of a Heineken or a Carlsberg to brew beer, it's not to run a fancy supply chain and ERP system. In, inside the four walls of the factory, it's not hitting the ground as it should have done in terms of that digital transformation paradigm shift that we were talking about at the beginning. And, and Jamie, how does that resonate with the work that you're doing from a you know, top-down and a C-suite level? How are they thinking about this problem? Well, I think what John does is, uh, is he, he shines a massive spotlight on the systemic problem. 
which surfaces one or two really interesting challenges at a C-suite, but also just general management level. We're part of a system that is self-fulfilling in many respects. Industry three leads to industry four. You've got a, a new wave of things, which are actually, while they're providing more options, they're actually also increasing the pace and the volatility or the describe the complexity of choice. And um, that doesn't make it any easier for the leaders that I, I tend to work with in terms of working out how to navigate choice. And the bit around the transformation that I've started to see really makes sense, where it starts to really get towards where things and feeling different are when leaders go, okay, I accept the complexity. I understand I'm never going to be a master of it. How do I connect it to what matters as an outcome? How do I bring the constituent parts that matter to me, to the people I work with, to the ones who I'm here to create an environment for so that we can actually make an outcome change? I think there's a phrase that keeps coming to mind, which is transformation is not in a deck. It happens when it hits the deck. So it's something about the way in which leaders have started to kind of go, oh, okay, I cannot personally know enough, work hard enough, make enough connections for me to be in control of this. I've got to start to collaborate differently. I've got to think differently. I've got to have a actually a very different mindset. Everything that education has taught me and everything that my career has rewarded me for over the last hour and many decades in most of those big organizations that John was referencing, how do I think differently about how to collaborate so that the people who can make the transformation happen, the shopping floor, the manufacturing plants, the field force, the sales teams, the consumer services people, the whoever it might be, the ones who are actually applying these brilliant ideas which are in the decks so that they actually hit the deck. And so we start to learn from it. And then you start to see the shifts. And big shifts don't happen in big leaps. They happen in lots of little steps. And then you measure them in slightly different time frames and go, oh, we've made a big jump. But actually haven't. It's always been incremental. But is it fair to say you know, that is an aspect of why we're in a situation where we are now? You know, John was mentioning the, the divisions we have, the different software categories that have sprung up you know can we iterate towards that kind of perfect vision and how do we how do we do that in a way that is solving these problems rather than you know creating more i think i think we can do that because there are exemplars of organizations they don't necessarily have to be for-profit organizations they can be not-for-profits they can be things which sort of almost supersede sort of transnational campaigns that show that it is possible to bring the right people together under the right circumstances with the right supporting conditions to affect things. And John and I actually were chatting before this session about things like the UN's Sustainable Development Goal number 17, uh, which is the least well-known of the Sustainable Development Goals, but it actually requires the world to think differently because it's all about partnership. Um, and there are some examples of people who are doing some, some really, really amazing stuff where they're bringing together on a transactional basis, and this is the difference that we're talking about. Transactional basis, they're saying, try and solve this problem. And they'll get every member of an ecosystem together and say, right, forget everything that you care about. Now let's see if we can solve this problem, given what you know, and let's let's make it a collective effort. Those kinds of transactional examples, I think, illustrate it's possible to shift. The challenges are, how many people are prepared to do that on a continuous basis? 
how many people are prepared to adopt a new way of working and some of that is going to be dependent on are they capable of seeing it work throughout their organization as opposed to just mm-hmm. watering and there are very few examples of where there are opportunities to see it translate rapidly through an organization that I've been aware of recently without there being a lot of external heavy lifting and an influence from people like me who you know, speak hot air to executives a lot of the time and then coach and facilitate. But there's only a certain number of me around and you know, dare I say it, I don't know nearly as much about how to make things work as the people who I spend time with. But what I'm hearing is you know, collaboration of the people that know what to do and, and getting multiple, um, I guess, are we talking about vendors here, getting multiple vendors around the table um, or is it stakeholders? Um, I know, John, I, you've got a lot to add to this as well. I, I, I would have always, until I met John, I would have described it just as like an ecosystem, but I think there's a way, there's a much more succinct way of describing this. Um, but yeah, I think it's always been, in my mind, a systemic problem. But I'll, I'll let John speak now about something much more catchy. Well, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, maybe catchy or just simplify it because that's how my brain works. I, I simplify things because yeah, then I can understand them. But I mean, in all seriousness, uh, just going back a few minutes, what we're essentially talking about here is it's a design paradigm issue. Because again, in, if you look at the history of design um, from... Uh, you know, the industrial revolution, mass production, then consumerism to design, and then design thinking around wrapping services and the whole experience around the product, et cetera, et cetera, and then human-centered design. If you follow the design paradigm, then where we are now is we need to think about system complexity and system design and look at the design of a system in its entirety. And if we focus in on manufacturing, historically, the way that we've designed systems, and again, hopefully this will resonate with people as to go back to my example, the strategic people who decide on the the strategic, you know, the five-year plan of the business, this is where we're going, people, these are the products, this is what we need to make. That's the strategic stuff, but that doesn't execute it. That's the, the directional. Then when it comes to people translating the directional strategy into operational, then it be- starts to become siloed and departmentalized. So IT will look at what they need to do as a department to meet the business objectives, but then engineering also look at what they need to do in terms of building new plant, putting in new production lines, you know, building new factories in a different country, et cetera. And they, they will start breaking that down into hardware, software services that they need to do that. IT are looking for software integrators and other things and operations are trying to implement best practice. So straight away, you start to get four silos internally, which are mirrored externally. So then you double the problem because then you've got eight potential silos of capability. But when you strip it back, if you look at a manufacturing, any manufacturing organization, all those components are part of a system. So strategy, IT, OT, operations, they all combine to the way that the company performs. It's not one, it's all of them. So if you take one of the sustainability goals, you know, net zero, whatever it may be, there's no one silo can deliver sustainability and no vendor in the ecosystem can deliver sustainability however big they are you know microsoft sap accenture mckinsey there's no one company can do that because you need a collaboration or components of the entire stack so that's when you come back to what jamie was saying about system design and system complexity 
and realizing that you cannot engineer every possible loophole out of the the system. You have to accept that it's going to have weaknesses in it, but designing for the whole rather than component parts is a better outcome because otherwise it's suboptimal. So it's like a, a Formula One racing team or a, a football, you know, choose the sport of your preference. But if the, on a Formula One car, if the engine team just totally designed the engine without consideration for anything else, and so do the suspension people and the tires, and then you select a driver at random because the right driver is this person, and the aerodynamics team are doing their own thing, you'll probably end up with a tractor. Whereas if you actually design the optimal thing, which is to win the race, it may not be the best driver or the best engine or the best tires or the best engine. It's the best combination of all of them working together that gets them over the line faster and the best engine or the best gearbox, which might have the best gearbox, but the engine fails. So you've got the best engine, but the aerodynamics are terrible. You know, so it's not about designing the best suboptimal piece. It's about designing, you know, the the system in its entirety to win the race. And I think that's where you have to break down the the silos. And again, just to make a simple one, most of the people I've come across in my career who were the, the highest level in the organizations I worked for at SAP or EY or Carney, and this is not being disrespectful at all in any way and I'm not meaning to be, but if you look at those people and their LinkedIn profiles, they've either been in that one company their entire career or they've been in that industry their entire career. And with all due respect, you become institutionalized into only seeing the problem from that piece of the world. So mm-hmm. the head of Siemens is not the same as the head of SAP, is not the same as the head of McKinsey. They're all incredibly valuable, but if, if you're in a particular work stream, same with the, the CIO, the CIO of a big global manufacturer, probably been in IT their entire career to have the badge and the credits to get to the CIO. But that then doesn't mean that they're a global head of operational excellence because that's a different career path. And they're not a CFO because that's a different career path. So you have all these silos of capability, all valuable, but all behaving in silos. And the final thing I'll say on that as well is people are driven by KPIs and and that dictates behavior. And at the moment, too many of the KPIs for all people inside an organization and outside are short term and counterproductive, actually. So you'll end up with a situation where procurement's job is to buy the lowest cost components and get the cost of buying down. But then those components are not fit for purpose in manufacturing, and it bumps up the manufacturing APIs because too many parts fail in production. And and same with warehousing and the you know it's, departmental KPIs are sometimes counterproductive inside an organisation. Love the analogy to teams. Uh, there's a great book called The Advantage that talks about you know taking that horizontal view of an organisation um, and building the right KPIs and also making sacrifices because in order to hit your production goals you might need procurement to not hit their procurement goals and vice versa. And Jamie, I know this is definitely in your wheelhouse, so I should definitely throw it over to you. How, how would you think about what John said? Well, I, I always get fascinated by John's descriptions of things, um, but then I recognize the systems I see. What comes to mind is something that I think is becoming, although I think it was, it's been around for a while, uh, a framework which I think is really very helpful a lot of organizations and instead of thinking of themselves how do i get good at what i do recognize the limitations of that and and work out what's the job to be done what's the job to be done of which i am a part of a either value chain ecosystem 
partnership of, of some sort of collaboration. What's the job? What's the end user's reason for everything that we're doing, that we're creating together? Um, and that was a, a phrase that I think it was Clayton Christensen coined a number of years ago. And I've cited his work in a lot of the sessions that I run with leadership groups when they're starting to try and get outside of their boundaries, outside of their frameworks of traditional ways of thinking to go, so what are we really here to do? Okay, well, let's maybe approach it from the outside in. Why would this person, this company, rent the service that we're offering them? It's a bit like that expression that, well, that phrase that people sometimes use, which is, why do people go and buy a drill from a shop? It's not because they want a drill. It's not even because they want a hole, because they want to hang something. So what's the job to be done? It's you've got to mm-hmm. think beyond the obvious immediate thing. So the idea of you know, what, what role you have to play in that ecosystem is what is the end purpose of this thing that I'm helping to create here? And I think what John is talking about with massive scale is a need to rethink what's the job to be done. Uh, that requires a massive shift. That requires such a massive shift. And John's touched on a number of things there. How do we measure ourselves? What are the constraints that measurement frameworks we have placed on us? They just trigger a need to be good at something as opposed to recognize that we're just monitoring progress. It means that we're not calling upon skills that we've always had. We've now got to tap into what Richard has, what John has, as opposed to what I have. And what it what it really calls upon, and this is something that I think is one of the most seismic shifts in some of the leadership development work that I'm involved in more directly, is that it means that leaders, although they've been always talking about letting go, becoming servant leaders, creating space for others. I think people in leadership roles right now, both in them and those who are about to take them in some very large companies that I work with, they're realizing that they absolutely have to change how they think, not what they know. This fits quite nicely with something I spend a lot of time thinking about as well, because, you know, in our day at Zaptic, we take um, a slightly different view of the market coming at a problem fresh and what you see in, in manufacturing especially is you've got all of these different solutions that have evolved over time around your personas and roles that exist. You've got safety systems, quality systems, got MES systems, and the list goes on. And there's no coincidence, to your point, John, that these map neatly onto your people who buy solutions. But if you look at what an operator needs to do, so a frontline worker, they're responsible across safety, quality, cost, delivery, environment, every single shift. And what we are trying to do is take a different view of this and look at what is a problem that needs to be solved because it's not, it's not paper on glass and it's not mobilizing existing systems. I mean, there are a lot of, let's say, mobile maintenance solutions out there that take a very clunky SAP interface and they pull it onto a tablet. That's not solving anything for anybody. Like how many factories do you walk around that don't have a PC or a terminal on every single line that is you know, at most 30 seconds away. So is taking that from a PC and putting it on a tablet going to drive real value for your business? Probably not. But if you look at it differently and you think, actually, what is the job to be done here? What's the problem that we want to solve? Then that's when the real value comes in. How do we guide workers through completing this activity? How do we simplify it for people who haven't got time to learn how to use SAP when they when they start a shift? Like John, for people that are, are listening to this podcast who are maybe thinking, Okay, this sounds great. Let's have a consensus, problem-based way of thinking about it. Any advice and tips on how how that can be done? 
Um, yeah, well, again, certainly in the past, uh, a bit like Jamie mentioned earlier, I have worked on projects where it has worked well and, and proven that it can be done. So again, the, there's one example where we were, the client was building a brand new factory uh, here in the UK. It was one of the, well, again, touching on all the points we talked about earlier. They were owned by a parent company in another country. It was their biggest ever CapEx request investment to build this new factory in the UK. So from a, a strategic point of view, it was high profile for the, the board level members. So that put pressure on the delivery team then to make sure it came in on time, on budget. And then when they turned the factory on, it produced what they expected. Now, the initial approach to that project was what I would still see most times today, quite traditional, where uh, there was a big DPC contract to, to build the physical factory. There were engineering people were designing the plant and equipment, but the IT team were trying to figure out how to integrate it into end-to-end -end business processes around demand planning, forecasting, procurement, raw material arriving on site, where you know finished product leaving the warehouse. So straight away there, you start to touch on their ERP system, their planning system, their MES system, the OEM equipment coming from like a Tetra Pak Crohn's uh, or a Tuchenhagen type company. Uh, you got PLC vendors in there, the likes of Siemens and others, the M which was different to the MES vendor. So you're already looking at five, six, seven different organizations. Now, if they, again, simple analogy, if everybody had gone off with a, a start point and a brief and specced out and bought and brought onto site what they thought they needed, you would have had a jigsaw puzzle with 18 pieces that didn't fit together very well at all. Um, and were totally different looking. So you don't get the full picture. You, and then when you realize the jigsaw pieces don't work together, that's when the cost and the delays come into the project. It goes over time, it goes over budget because you have to go back and re-engineer. Somebody has to give. There's usually an argument over whose idea was right in the first place. So, But sitting everybody around the table on day one and asking the question you were both talking about a few minutes ago in terms of what's our collective objective here? What are we trying to do? And the answer was simple for everybody. It's we need this factory built by that date for this amount of money. We're all going to get some money out of this project because we've all been assigned to supply some scope. But at the start of that process at that point, the scope and the definition wasn't totally ironed out to a bill of materials you could place an order against. So rather than going down the design process separately in parallel and buying things that didn't fit to site uh, fit very well when they came back to site everybody sat around the table and designed that collaboratively and i mean collaboratively as in the clients people on one side of the table saying this is how i work this is what i need i need this information at this time and the vendors sat on the other side of the table not not arguing but basically saying well you could do that in my solution but well yeah you could do it in my solution too and the thing that if you like the golden ticket that I found on that project was, uh, and again, no just no disrespect to anyone listening, as soon as you got the salespeople out of the room, it worked very well. <laughs> Eng Engineering-minded people are probably too honest for their own good. You know, they do not like to overcommit. So they, if their product didn't quite do that yet, it was in development, they'd say so. It's like, no, no, it's not ready yet. And then, you know, there's almost like a professional integrity to not leave themselves exposed so when the engineers were left to design the projects with the clients users they came up with the a good design and the thing the difference there in that approach was through that collaboration and that's the key word through collaboration 
everybody at the end of the design process knew what their bill of materials and scope of supply was, but all the pieces of the jigsaw were actually lined up to, so that when they delivered them to site, they fit together much better. Um, and there were far fewer pinks and things to, to do, but just having that, that change, that slight change of approach is a, a leap of faith to go into a design process where everything's on the table and nothing's on the table in terms of you, you could theoretically design yourself out of the room to a zero bill of material, which didn't happen clearly for anyone. Because in, again, if you do it, if you did a Venn diagram, there'd be some things, well, that's just a given that's going to be SAP. That's just a given that's going to be the MES system. It's the 20% of, well, it could be done there. It could be done there. That's where it requires the give and take of people to say, well, where's the best place to do it? What, what are we actually trying to do here? But that was four or five big systems, an ERP system, a planning system, an MES system, a process control system, and a quality system, all being designed in collaboration. That's the key word, in collaboration, with a slightly different commercial approach. I bet it felt different doing it like that. It did. Going back to the start of the podcast, it was that, to me, was a transformation. I've never seen that since, actually, in terms of that level of... <laughs> You know, four or five brand logos sat around a table who theoretically could compete. And that's the frustrating thing, actually. Having worked for SAP and with Wonderware and Siemens and those guys, if you actually took their both of their respective product catalogs and went through them and said to each other, "Is that, do you have a competitive solution to this? You'd probably find that 80% of SAP and 80% of Siemens product portfolio doesn't compete at all. You know, the last time I checked, SAP don't make PLCs. And the last time I checked, Siemens don't offer an ERP solution. So two of the flagship solutions, they don't offer each other. It's the bits in the middle. And that 10, 20% of overlap kills the relationship collaborating because salespeople are just driven by KPIs and they don't want to give anything away on the bill of material. So it's not a technical, the whole digital transformation thing is not a technical challenge. It's a mindset shift. And I think that's something we're seeing in the industry as well. Like there's a lot of technology vendors that are specializing. You know, like 20, 30 years ago, it was incredibly expensive and time consuming to install on-premise software that needed hardware and you know, specific um, seller consultancy time. So it absolutely made sense to have you know one vendor that can come in and give you that full suite of capability. But now let's just start the case, you know, with uh, Web 3.0 and, and SaaS you can spin up new capabilities very quickly and the integration cost is very low. So that then opens you up to actually choose the best-in-class provider. I want the best OE solution. I want the best quality system. I want the best ERP. And every vendor out there has their strengths. They have their bread and butter. And if, imagine a world where they could all lead with what they do strongest and then the person that wins is a customer. Yeah, well, and particularly if there's something that connects them together where not only the customer wins, but the people who are closest to understanding what the customer really needs is helping to give guidance. Well, I didn't say they're in control, but they are, they are, they are you know, really instrumental in their input to understanding, well, how is this going to work? So don't let's, let's not forget uh, in the ecosystem, having people, and I think what John's just beautifully described, is the human connection element that leads to unexpected outcomes from an environment that feels different, a transformative environment. You don't really know what the answer is going to be. And that's the bit of the leadership challenge, which is leaders are taught to be certain and always have the answer and be in control. But actually leaders now need to go, I'm comfortable creating the environment and the container 
for the people who really understand what's going on to be connected and collaborate in ways that create unpredictable outcomes because we're in a complex, unpredictable environment and we've got to try stuff out. And actually, that's the transformation. That's where it starts to, starts to feel different. As a result of it starting to feel different, you start to see different things. I think part of the enabler for me, to me, manufacturing, I don't know why I work in manufacturing because it frustrates the living daylight. <laughs> but the thing is, me and my wife were lucky enough to, to build a new house three years ago. So you're literally starting with a blank canvas piece of paper to, to build. And obviously when we built it, we tried to future-proof it. So we built in Cat6 cable and wired it into every room and put Wi-Fi and, and various other things in. So that was... You know, so if you're building a new thing, you put that in. But now, in terms of what, what you were saying, Richard, about advances in technology, most of the things that we look for now is, does it work with Alexa? So like the smart lights that we bought, the Philips uh, Hue lights, you know, I can tell the lights to turn on and off by just talking to Alexa now. I don't care about the back-end integration of how those lights are Alexa-enabled. It's just that my decisions now are, well, we're going to buy the electric garage doors can I tell Alexa to open the garage door or the electric gates or light up my trees in the garden, you know, which is a bit sad, but um, you can get the point. It's um, all, all these, like, you know, being able to um, control the heating for when I'm abroad, you know, on an app, just go in and turn all the heating off because I'm abroad and stuff. Uh, now, now, I don't care whether those systems I'm using are coming from 15 different suppliers. I just don't care. Yeah, I think they all work off the same backbone. I just tell Alexa or you know, Siri, let's be fair, Siri or Google, other options are available. I tell my... Uh, <laughs> no, no, this is not on the BBC. My phone's <laughs> me now. My phone's waiting for me to tell it something. It's like, no, go away. Oh. <laughs> Honestly, I thought I turned airplane mode. But you get you get the point. If, so things that we can do and expect as second nature in domestic, you know, home life, like, why is that not possible in manufacturing why is not you know, why isn't everything just on an open standard connectivity where we can pull the data from the MSs and the LPs and give it to the people who need it at the right time that they need it and from an operator's point of view I could not care less if that information was coming from SAP an MES system a LIM system a cloud somewhere I just don't care it's just give me the information I need to make the right next decision yeah t totally like do can I get the information do I like it and I, I'm a perpetual optimist. Do you feel like, John, that that, that was happening slowly? You know, things like OPC UA um, and move towards sort of message-based uh, data integration. And there's a whole bunch of technologies that have come in in the last kind of 10 years that admittedly aren't deeply adopted. But I'm hoping that, you know, we're getting that. Do you see a world in the next sort of five, 10 years where we do have that, the ability to integrate easily with multiple vendors? Yeah, absolutely. Because like I said, the same core technologies that, I was joking about on home automation that basically they are the same ones that could be applied in a manufacturing context. And I go back to my point five minutes ago, the challenge is not the technology, the technology is there. What it requires is that change of leadership and mindset, going back to what Jamie said 20 minutes ago, it's right, you know, your inside the four walls of your factories is a complex system. And you can't control and engineer every last aspect of it, but you need to have a fresh look at it. You need to change the KPIs, you change change the leadership structure, break down your own internal silos, change your relationship with the vendor ecosystem, bring about a paradigm shift in approach to how you can do this. 
And when everybody's looking at that problem, but with a fresh remit and a fresh pair of eyes, then yeah, actually, yeah, you can solve these problems pretty quickly. So, so this pilot purgatory that we're in and have been in since uh, 2016 or so when, you know, the technological revolution of Industry 4 was starting to really gather momentum, I think we can quickly get out of pilot purgatory that it's going to require quite a change. Uh, I, I wrote an article a few, um, maybe 18 months ago, and I don't know why. I'll probably live to regret this if I ever become famous. <laughs> I um, I did reference Elon Musk because I, I did think that one of the points that he was making was was valid in some respects. Is that no one's perfect, John. Well, no, I know. But um, if you take the leaders of our organizations, you know, the CXOs of the big multinational corporates and, and take a step back, Probably the vast majority do have MBAs and various other things in terms of qualifications. But you could argue that the machine of producing MBAs means they're all going to think the same and measure to the same metrics and therefore, broadly speaking, you, you, know, you follow the same path. There's no, no innovation in there theoretically. So then you could say, well, to do that, you need a different path. You need a different mindset. You need to change the way you're thinking because who's to say that the academic route that we've been teaching CXOs to think like for the last 20 years is now relevant, or 30, 40 years is now relevant in today's environment. It's a different world. Um, That's a whole different podcast, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Elon Musk. That's what I'm thinking. Oh, well, I was thinking, and by the way, if you're going to bring Elon Musk up, are you going to challenge him to a bit of mixed martial arts? I'm not challenging him. <laughs> I'm not challenging him until I have a dollar behind him on the bank account. Oh, yeah. I won't get it and hide. I, I, I like that answer. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can't think of a kickboxing Elon Musk. I can't think of a better way to, to end the podcast. So, John, Jamie, thank you so much for, for coming on today. It's been re really interesting, not surprisingly. And yeah, hope to have you on again soon. It's been thank you, Eric. Absolute pleasure. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And I hope you join us again soon.